Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a saint who walked confidently through a moment of chaos, facing down kings, popes, and wild beasts. Name, Serbonius. Life, around 493 to 575 AD. Status, Saint. Feast, October 10th. During the terrible 5th century, barbarian warbands tore apart the territory that had once been the Western Roman Empire. The church emerged from centuries of persecution only to be knocked back down by the force of the Arian heresy. Today's manly saint walked calmly and confidently through this collapsing world. Where others tried not to be obtrusive, Serbonius is often painted, followed by a squawking gaggle of geese. You would notice Serbonius coming, and if you stood in his way when he got there, so much the worse for you. To understand why the church so desperately needed men like Serbonius in the 5th century, we have to go back a little over a hundred years before Serbonius's birth, that we can stay in the same place, which is Roman Africa. The Arian heresy had started in Alexandria, the hometown of the priest Arius. Even though he wasn't the only one promoting it, his name was the one that stuck, which is why we call these sorts of heretics Arians. By the way, Arian with an I is taken from a Latin name, Arius, and so it is unrelated to the racial term Arian with a Y, which comes from a Sanskrit word meaning noble one. The idea that Arius pushed seemed simple, but it struck at the heart of the church. Arius thought that Jesus was subordinate to God the Father. This would mean that Jesus was a creation, although perhaps the first and greatest of the created order. The heresy allowed Christians who were shaky in their beliefs to compromise a little. The idea of a subordinate God made sense to pagans. It helped pagan Platonists to map the Trinity onto their own philosophical principles. When the church began to crack down on his teaching, Arius made it appeal to ordinary people by creating catchy tunes that had the people of Alexandria humming heresy. Legend has it that when Arius defended his heresy at the First Council of Nicaea, St. Nicholas, the saint who inspired the story of Santa Claus, got so angry that he jumped up and backhanded the heretic. Now, when Arius died in 336, it seemed to some that the heresy was coming to an end. But during his life, he had managed to convince a man whose importance was not yet obvious. That man was Ulphilus, a Roman who had been raised among a barbarian people who had wandered close to the borders of the Roman Empire, the Goths. And now, 
Bishop Ulphilas went back to the tribe he knew. Ulphilas translated the Bible into the Gothic language, and he was successful in evangelizing them. But when they became Christians, they converted into the Arian heresy. Perhaps some in Rome didn't see the problem if a few barbarians had heretical views, for in time, Rome could correct them. That wasn't how things turned out. As the 300s came to an end, the Western Roman Empire grew weaker and weaker. By 410, Rome, the Eternal City, had been sacked by the Goths. Rome would be conquered and sacked again and again through the 5th century, as waves of barbarians tore through the empire and divided its lands. And by now, most of the tribes were Aryan heretics. And so it was that, when Serbonius was born in the 490s, in the rubble of what had once been Roman Africa, the heresy that Arius had hatched at Alexandria had returned at the head of an army. In the case of Africa, the barbarians in question were the Vandals. They set about rooting out the old Roman aristocracy and persecuting Orthodox Christians, sometimes together. When he was a young man, Serbonius left Africa. He seems to have followed a group of Christians who wanted to retreat from the world, and perhaps form a monastery. He may already have been a priest by this time. Serbonius settled on the west coast of Italy, southwest of Florence, in the small town of Populonia. Populonia was not in Vandal territory. This part of Italy had been conquered by another barbarian group, the Ostrogoths. These Goths were Arians too, but their rule was considerably more tolerant than that of the Vandals. And so the little monastic community was left, more or less to itself, unnoticed by the Goths. We know virtually nothing about this period of Serbonius's life and yet I sometimes think that it must have been among the most interesting times in his thinking. For it must have been now that Serbonius's faith deepened, and that he decided he would no longer run from barbarians. The Roman world was falling to pieces around him, but he would walk through the ruins on whatever path God set him. The locals began to notice the little community of Roman African transplants. At some point, they asked Regulus, one of the senior priests, to become the local bishop, and Regulus agreed. And just like that, Regulus and Serbonius and the others were involved in worldly affairs. Regulus was bishop, so it affected him first. The king of the Ostrogoths, a man named Totila, took offense at something Regulus had done and had him decapitated. I'm sure that Serbonius's heart was heavy as he buried the man who had led him from his distant home to Gothic Italy. He wasn't just mourning the loss of Regulus. Serbonius would be the one to take his place as bishop. A medieval tradition tells us that at some point in his monastic life, Serbonius had come to think that Christ's moment of resurrection was at dawn on Easter morning. In honor of this, Serbonius celebrated the first Mass of the day early. Really early. He liked to be elevating the host as the first rays of the sun came over the horizon. The story is that this caused complaints from his congregation, who 
absolutely hated getting up in the dark to go to church. But Serbonius insisted that this very early Mass was good and right. If you listened carefully, he'd say, you could hear the choir of angels joining in. The tradition has it that the people sent a complaint about their early bird bishop to Rome. But reading between the lines, we can see that part of the concern was over Serbonius's lifestyle. People who came by on a Sunday morning saw Serbonius having breakfast. They thought he hadn't even bothered to hold a service, let alone observe the Eucharistic fast, the interval of not eating before receiving the Eucharist. In the story, the Pope, Vigilius, sends legates to check things out, and they come upon Serbonius and his deacons enjoying breakfast on Sunday morning, and draw exactly the wrong conclusion. They assume he's a corrupt time-server who doesn't even bother to celebrate Mass and just wants to eat and drink with the money he raises from the faithful. And so they summon Serbonius to appear before the Pope, Vigilius. That summons was not out of character for Pope Vigilius. His ascension was made possible by the reconquest of Rome. The Eastern Roman Empire, the part that was undefeated, had been recapturing the West in the name of Rome. The Emperor Justinian had sent his general, Belisarius, to crush the Vandal Kingdom in Africa. And now, Belisarius was making war on King Totila in Italy. Belisarius had decided that the current pope was too sympathetic to the Goths, and had worked to have him replaced by Vigilius. The eastern court hoped that Vigilius would be a rubber stamp for the emperor, but he turned out to be doggedly orthodox. A bishop who didn't even hold a service on Sunday morning? That was exactly the sort of bishop that Vigilius would not have liked. But right from the start, Serbonius did not act like a guilty man. It seems that his accusers ran out of food and water on the journey back, and God worked a miracle through Serbonius to feed them. If Serbonius had been guilty, he would have wanted to slink quietly into the city. Instead, he did the opposite. A flock of geese were flying overhead, and he made the sign of the cross. They descended and followed Serbonius and the legates into the city, honking and squawking and getting everyone's attention. That is why Serbonius is often painted bringing his noisy geese along into the communion of the saints. By the time Serbonius was in Rome, Vigilius had gotten word of his very strange, very noisy approach. The Pope was a little nervous, and got off his papal throne to meet this strange bishop. At the door, Serbonius dismissed the geese, and they flew away. Vigilius was sufficiently impressed that Serbonius wasn't put under any sort of arrest before the interrogation that was to come. And that is how Serbonius was able to get up at his usual early hour, walk through the stillness of the night into the papal apartments, and rouse Pope Vigilius, who was sound asleep, to tell him to get up. It was time for Mass. Serbonius dragged the sleepy Pope out, and they celebrated together, probably in some little chapel. And then, during the Gloria, there it was, just as Serbonius had said. Angelic voices filled the quiet of the dawn. I imagine Vigilius holding his breath. The interrogation would not be necessary. He sent Serbonius home, 
with papal permission to celebrate Mass whenever he thought was correct. Serbonius returned to Populonia, which was still under Gothic control. He had faced down a pope. Now it would be time to face down a king. The catalyst for his encounter with Totila was when some of Belisarius's troops had become stuck behind enemy lines in Populonia. They came to Serbonius's house, and he offered them hospitality. When, as it happened, some Gothic warriors were passing by, Serbonius helped the Romans to hide and sent them on their way later. The story of what the bishop had done eventually reached the ears of Totila, who was not amused. Totila had already executed one bishop of Populonia. But between then and now, he had had a disconcerting encounter with another saint, Benedict. A few years earlier, he had decided to put Benedict to the test. Everyone said that Benedict had prophetic gifts. Since Benedict had never seen him before, Totila gave his royal clothes to one of his companions, thinking they would all have a good laugh as the prophet addressed the false king. But when they met Benedict, the saint took one look at Totila's companion and told him to take off the clothes that did not belong to him. Totila, now worried, went to see the monk and bowed low. Benedict wasn't smiling. You are the cause of many evils, Benedict said. Put an end, now, to your wickedness. And just in case Totila didn't have enough motivation, Benedict decided to give him a taste of prophecy, after all. You have nine more years to rule, Benedict said. And in the tenth year, you will die. That was a lot to think about. Totila tried hard to be a better man. But even a semi-reformed barbarian king couldn't tolerate someone hiding the troops of his enemies. And so he summoned Serbonius to be brought to his camp. The Goths had trapped some bears, animals which had symbolic as well as real value, for the bear was once considered the king of beasts in Europe, before the heraldic introduction of that southerner, the lion. Totila decided to show his men how Roman traders were dealt with, and put Serbonius into an arena with a particularly hungry bear. Our source for this story, Pope St. Gregory the Great, was only a toddler when it took place. But he heard the story from people who were there, a fact which is all the more remarkable when you realize that these eyewitnesses must have been Arians themselves at the time. Perhaps it was watching Serbonius that reconciled them to the church. For the bear, after racing out of its cage and charging the bishop, slowed down, then waddled up to him and started licking his feet and hands. After watching his ferocious bear reduced to a big house pet, I imagine Totila getting worried and having flashbacks to the conversation with St. Benedict. As Gregory puts it, King Totila looked at what had happened and decided to imitate the bear. He sent Serbonius on his way. And so, Serbonius returned to Populonia. At some point, he seems to have moved across the water from the town to the tiny island of Elba, a few miles away. But Serbonius had already prepared a tomb for himself in Populonia, and he knew he would be making one last journey back. But in Italy, 
the fortunes of war had shifted again. Belisarius's conquests on behalf of Justinian had reunited the Roman Empire, killing Totila and crushing the kingdom of the Ostrogoths. But history does not produce many Justinians and Belisarius's, and under their heirs, Italy slipped out of Roman control once again. Now, Italy was being invaded by yet another barbarian group, also Aryan heretics. They were the Lombards. The Lombards were coming down from the north. And as Serbonius was dying on Elba, the Lombards had almost arrived at Populonia. Out on the island of Elba, Serbonius told his friends that he was going to die, and he wanted them to take his body and put it in the tomb that he had prepared. The others laughed. It was impossible. The Lombards were coming. The fires and smoke of their raids may well have been visible from Elba. But the old saint just smiled. Take me to Populonia. Nothing will happen to you, so do not be afraid, but hasten to take care of my burial. As soon as you have buried me, leave the place with all speed. After Serbonius had died, the extremely nervous clergy found a ship. As they sailed into Populonia, storm clouds rolled in, lashing the sea with rain and wind. But somehow, as they sailed the few miles between Elba and Populonia, the rain fell in sheets on either side of their little ship, but never touched them. The Lombards were already there, by the town, but they were hunkered down for the storm. The clergy hurried into town, opened the tomb, and laid Serbonius's body in it. After the ceremony, the clergy left, fast. As they were leaving, the weather was clearing up, and they later learned that by the time they were stepping onto the ship, the Lombards had burst into the church to find out what was going on. But by then, the ship was under sail, and there was no one there but St. Serbonius, resting in his tomb. <laughs>